Hey, uh, if you would uh, stand, if you're able to, stand with me just for the reading of uh, scripture in for the first Sunday of Lent. This is Psalm 25, verse 1 to 10. To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. You may be seated. You just may need to take this out of the monitors. We're trying some new things and playing around with things, so thank you for your patience. Uh, Growing up in a secular culture, like the one that we live in today, the concept of the presence of God has been detached from my reality. It's felt detached from reality at best. And at worst, it's uh, felt like uh, Christianese jargon. To start, by definition, a secular culture means that the reality of God in our culture is not assumed. That's what secular means. And we do live in a secular culture. In a religious culture, like most cultures have ever been and most societies have ever been built on, at least those that have lasted, in a religious society or culture, the assumption includes the reality of God. The fundamental basis of truth and morality and goodness is assumed to come from God or something that that group of people in their language calls God. The question for a religious society is less Is there a God and more, what is God like? In a secular culture like ours, the burden of proof has always been on those who profess faith or belief in God's existence. It used to be the other way around. You'd have to give a really good reason to suggest that there is no God. It was self-evident. It was plain. It was obvious. Today, it's the opposite reality. You seem to need to come up with a good reason to have faith at all. And in public life, it seems like nobody has time to consider the ideas and consider the options, to consider the evidences of God or of faith. We've moved on from that in our public conversation. I think people just don't want to be bothered with it. We don't have the courage or we don't have the time to press in and to wrestle with Which means that the idea of God's presence, the language of God's presence, the concept of God's presence is something that only really gets talked about in religious communities, in gatherings like this. You don't hear it talked about much elsewhere. As a matter of fact, in the culture that we live in, it's uh, it's even considered rude to bring it up 
at work or over dinner conversation. Like when was the last time that um, you talked to your kid's school principal and asked them about the presence of God in their life? You probably haven't, or their teacher, and they probably haven't said to you that this, we're doing this because God says this or suggests this, right? They're not, they're not thinking through that framework. We're not talking about that at all. You're not going to your doctor and asking your doctor about his prayer life, and you're not hearing from your doctor anything about your faith or anything about the reality of God and the way he uses people and works through circumstances to bring about some goodness and potential uh, healing. We don't talk about it much with our friends. We feel awkward even talking about it with our family. And we definitely don't talk about it in politics. When was the last time you, you engage with a local representative of you at a government level? I engage with them quite often and the conversation is never how, how, is, how is your relationship with God influencing your, your policies or the decisions that you're making? That's not even a conversation. As a matter of fact, if you ask our local representative about their relationship with God or the reality of God's presence in their life and how it guides them, leads them, dictates the decisions that they make, he would not be able to give you an answer. I've asked, and it would be difficult to. And that's just the norm. It's not an indictment. That's just the reality of living in the secular West. Is this distracting the echo that's going on, or is that okay? We can make some adjustments. It might be more distracting for me because I'm standing right up here. I don't know if there's a better place to stand. Let me get back. So with that in mind, it makes sense that the idea of God's presence would be handled um, like, uh, like people, people like me would handle it with a lot of uncertainty or a lot of skepticism. And I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me and you grew up with a very similar background that I did, uh, you would even probably feel and think in your heart, your mind, and your body uh, a sense of skepticism anytime somebody used the language of the presence of God. Santi used it this morning. We sang about it this morning. And, and if you're like me, there's something in you that is really, really unsure or skeptical, even as those who are the faithful few, quote-unquote, believers. And if the reality of God is granted... And if God's presence is something that can be experienced specifically and uniquely, then what on earth would that be like is the question that a lot of us have asked. I've been wrestling with that question since I started taking faith seriously back in my late teens and early 20s. What on earth is the presence of God like and what would it be like? To add to the confusion for me, and this might be unique to me, but maybe you can share in this experience yourself a little bit, I grew up in a Christian tradition that was fairly skeptical of um, people's testimonies of God's experience. I'll unpack that for a second. If you asked me eight years ago what, uh, where I thought God's presence could be found, I would tell you one place. And this is the only place I'd be confident telling you it can be found and I would even not be that confident telling you that. But if you asked me eight years ago where the presence of God can be found, I would tell you it can be found in the Bible. And that's where it can be found. I would tell you that if you want to hear from God and you want to know what his presence looks like and you want to experience his presence, then just go read your Bible. If God was present anywhere, he was present in his word while I read it. And at least for me, eight years ago, and a little bit before and a little bit after, nowhere else was trustworthy. 
It was only the Bible. Not a voice or a nudge or a word. It didn't feel trustworthy. I was taught because my heart is deceitful above all things. So I can't trust my emotion. I can't trust my feeling. I can't trust my sense. I can only trust my mind, my rationality through the study of Scripture. Within that tradition, um, spiritual gifts, especially the miraculous ones, are believed to have ceased after the Bible was formed in the fourth century. And so uh, anything that was like um, a, a healing that happened or a prophetic word that was spoken or somebody speaking this thing called tongues, to me, all of that was just uh, made up. I was uh, Charismatic chaos is what I learned from a guy named John MacArthur was the term for that. It was charismatic chaos and it's demonic and I should stay away from it. I'm telling you about my formation. I don't know what yours is because some of you guys come from backgrounds where that was your experience at church. You're like, that's where God's found. And I was taught that he's not found there or at least that's the assumptions I carried with me because of the tradition. Miracles to me were unlikely. There was almost always a naturalistic explanation to them. And if there wasn't one that was obvious, there's one to be found eventually because miracles weren't much of a thing. The idea of experiencing God in nature sounded like paganism and sounded super dangerous, right? Like people were like, oh, I go, where do you find God? I find him up on a hill in a mountain. And like red flags would go off, alarm bells would go off, pagan, 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 right? This is how it was. I was young and dumb, so most of this is me. It's not the tradition, but that's telling you what my sense was. Uh, if you use the language of meditation, you said you're meditating, I immediately assumed like new ageism has been baked into your, your Christian theology. I had no concept of Christian meditation at all. And God's presence in a worship service or in singing that was just emotionalism. I don't know if you grew up like me, but it was like any kind of expressiveness on a Sunday or outside of that with, with music was just emotionalism. We had to be very cautious of, of that. And so I felt very cautious of that. And, and then when it came to prayer, um, and again, this is just me and my own experience and my silly, foolish, early 20s understanding of the environment that I was in, coupled with the secular upbringing growing up here in the West, prayer... Prayer was at best a one-way conversation, me confessing, me asking, me stating my hopes and dreams and desires. There wasn't a whole lot of listening. The idea of even listening to God and, 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 and God's presence, like being there and speaking to me and guiding me and nudging me and pushing me, that was, that was very, very dangerous and foreign to me. I'm not saying this is your experience. I'm telling you my... So the presence of God was was to be read and understand in the Bible. That's where the presence of God was. Rightly dividing the word of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, and, uh, and that was the place where it was found. And then anything that came out of that was just me acting in obedience to God's presence in Scripture. Now, I say all that to say that in the fall here at Southside, we are going to, as a community, spend a lot of time talking about Scripture, and we're going to talk about how the presence of God is found in Scripture. We're going to do the practice of Scripture, and I'm really looking forward to that, not just to come back to my roots, because we spend a lot of time talking about Scripture and finding God's presence in Scripture. It's not like that will be a new thing. That's what we do on a regular basis here at Southside, but, but I'm excited to talk specifically about that and to walk through that practice together as a church, because it is, it is fundamental, and it is key, and it is core, and it is one of the places where the presence of God is known, sensed, experienced, and felt. 
But with everything I've kind of said so far, with, for me, this mix of kind of conservative evangelical upbringing and Canadian secularism all baked in, I have an extremely cautious relationship with the idea or the reality of the presence of God. And I'm saying that to you because I'm assuming many of you have a similar upbringing to me if you grew up around here and you've been part of an evangelical church for any amount of time over the last few decades. So to use the language of God's presence, with it, when I use it, it it carries with it all that uncertainty and all those questions and all that baggage that I just live with in my mind and my heart and my body and even in my bones, like I've said. However, at Southside, we are believing, but not just believing, we are living as though it is true that we are formed into Christ's likeness when we spend time in God's presence. I'm convinced that God's presence is a far more familiar experience than, when, than what I thought it was back when I was young, dumb, and 24 or whatever. Some of you are thinking, you're still pretty young and dumb. <laughs> and you're right. But I'm convinced that it is... Um, that it's a much more familiar experience. And I say that to say to people who don't even come from a strong faith background or haven't grown up in church like I have, today I want to be able to invite you into considering maybe the presence of God is more familiar to you than you even realize, and maybe you just have learned to use different language around it. The language that we're using often here at Southside in this season is we want to be with Jesus in order to become like Jesus in order to live how Jesus lived. And the starting part of being with Jesus is just another way of saying spending time in the presence of God. And I believe, I live as though this is true, that our gathering even here this morning, like Santi said to us this morning, is being in the presence of God. I believe when we sing, when we pray, when we celebrate, when we learn, when we teach kids upstairs, when we laugh with one another, when we engage with one another after this, get up and make a ton of noise and ask how one another's doing and care for one another and support one another and serve one another. I believe that the, the presence of the living God is actually here with us. One of the most beneficial shifts in understanding in my own life and perspective in my own life in the last several years has been around the topic of God's presence and the idea of it. And it's something that keeps shifting. I don't think shifting, I think expanding. I hope it's expanding. I hope it's not changing constantly, but actually growing. That's been my own experience. And then my hope for the church and our church is that over the next several weeks, and then hopefully forevermore, as we talk about God's presence more specifically on Sunday mornings and throughout our week, that we will start to not only talk about it and think about it, but experience God's presence in a new and refreshing way. I think when we understand it properly or correctly, then we can start to feel it and experience it. And I think that could be a good thing. I hope that we learn a thing or two about what the presence of God may be. But more than anything, I hope that we experience it in a reality. I hope that is actually formational for you. That you feel free to embrace the presence of God and live into the presence of God and trust the presence of God in a way that actually heals you, informs you, and shapes you. That's my hope. Because if we just learn about it, we won't be changed. Something that we have to experience. And it's in the experience of it that we truly grow. So this morning I want to open up the conversation. And I want to open it up 
in a unique way to me. I want to try to connect the universal concept of the divine logos with the felt experience of God's presence. And if that's meaningless Christianese jargon to you, welcome. I hope by the end of today it's less jargon and more meaningful. In order to uh, do that, I'm just going to invite my friends at the Bible Project to open up this conversation surrounding John chapter 1 and the divine logos. So watch the TV, and then I'll unpack a few things for us this morning, and that'll be most of the morning. In the Bible, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus that altogether are called the gospel. And the Gospel of John begins by introducing Jesus as the Word of God. What does that mean for a person to be a word? Yeah, it's a great question. Let's check it out. So John's account has 21 chapters, and it begins with a carefully designed prologue that places Jesus' story in a cosmic context. It starts like this. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. That's how the story of the whole Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Right, John is claiming that to really understand who Jesus is, you need to start way, way back in the beginning. And what was God doing in the beginning? He was speaking his creative word into the darkness. Words like, let there be light, let the dry land appear, let plants grow. Picture a king who can get things done just by speaking a word. That's how God speaks in Genesis 1, 10 times. And each word turns the dark chaos into an ordered cosmos that is full of life. Creation hears the word and obeys. Now, think about it. A person's word is their word because it embodies their thoughts. But as it goes out from them, it becomes separate. It's this idea that John explores next. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice how John has designed this opening statement. So the outer lines are about the word's eternal nature. He's from the beginning. And then the center lines are a claim about the word's identity. The word is both with God and is God. They're two and also one. Now, after these opening lines are six more paragraphs that are arranged in two matching groups. The first three tell the story of Jesus with imagery drawn from the scroll of Genesis. Creation began with God bringing light into darkness, and now, with the coming of Jesus, God's beginning a new creation. In him was life, and that life was the light of a humanity. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it. In the next paragraph, we meet a new character, John the Baptizer. Yeah, he was preparing Israel for something new that God was going to do by bearing witness to Jesus when he arrived. John came as a witness so he could bear witness to the light, so that everyone could believe through him. After this, the third paragraph explores the choice people face when God's light enters the world through Jesus. Some choose to stay in the dark, but others enter the light and are recreated, reborn as new kinds of humans. Unto his own he came, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So these three paragraphs summarize the story of Jesus as God's word bringing light to the darkness. All imagery from Genesis. Right. And now watch. John will go back and retell the same story again, but this time with imagery taken from the scroll of Exodus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father. 
So the eternal word of God entered into creation by becoming a mortal human named Jesus. And he dwelt among us? Yeah, the Greek word for dwelt is skenein. It means literally to live in a tent. John is comparing Jesus to the sacred tabernacle that Moses built at Mount Sinai, the place where God's glorious presence came to live and unite with his people. So Jesus is a human tabernacle? Yeah, he's the reality to which the tabernacle pointed, the place where God and humanity are united as one. Next, we get another mention of John the baptizer, who's bearing witness to Jesus, saying, This is the one of whom I said, the one who comes after me actually precedes me because he was long before me. After this, John tells about how he and his friends actually met Jesus and how they made the choice to follow and trust him and so were transformed by his light. From his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. The Torah was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Messiah. John was an Israelite, part of the family, that received through Moses the generous gift of the Torah that shared God's word and wisdom. And now, through Jesus, John and his fellow Israelites have received the ultimate gift of God's truth and love, Jesus himself. And this time, God's word isn't written. It's a person. Exactly. Now, to wrap things up, John concludes the prologue with words that echo the opening lines. No one has ever seen God, the one and only God who is in the lap of the Father. That one has made known. So, on the one hand, God is transcendent and above all, totally other. And if that were the end of the story, God would remain distant from us. But then John starts talking about this one and only God who's in the lap of the Father. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember in the prologue's opening, John used the image of God and God's word. Now he uses another image of a father whose son is sitting really close. A king and his word, a father and his son, they're both ways of saying the same thing. Right. John wants to make clear that the Jesus he knew was both distinct from God and also God. And as God's word and son and light and glory, Jesus came to make known. Yeah, to make known what? Yeah, exactly. In Greek, John doesn't say. He actually leaves the sentence open. He forgot to finish the last sentence? No, it's on purpose. It's John's invitation to keep reading the story so you can discover for yourself what Jesus wants to make known to you. Ultimately, John sees the whole story of the Bible as an invitation to know and be known by the Father and the Son, who together are the one God. That video is made by our friends at The Bible Project. It's Tim Mackey, their resident theologian, does an excellent job unpacking, as well as creating these visuals that are super helpful for you to understand. I want to talk about the Logos just for a little bit this morning, and I want to connect it to the presence of God, and I hope this is useful to you. And we'll do that after the thunder stops upstairs. The Logos, um, the Logos, the word Logos, it's a Greek word, and the Greek word Logos means word or reason, but it actually means way more than that. Um, the idea of the Logos is rooted in uh, Western tradition, Greek roots that dates back to 600 BC with a philosopher uh, called Heraclitus. And he used the word to explain the seeming collective and transcendent order to the cosmos, as well as the ordering to human reasoning. The early philosophers, what they noted was that there seems to be an order in the world 
and things seem to make sense. There seems to be these laws that, that help things stay connected and in touch and, and, and in order. And in the same way, our mind works that way. That's where you get the laws of logic. If you've ever studied any philosophy, that's what that is. There's, there's these certain laws that just make sense, and we couldn't think without these laws being in place. And so they believed that there was kind of this, this source that, that gave us all of the order that kept all things together, both in the cosmos and as well as in you and in I personally. They believed that this logos, this this idea, this, this guiding principle, that it was an active and rational principle that permeated all of reality. <clears throat> now, this wasn't just unique to Western philosophy. It was uh, expanded upon, especially with Christianity's connection to it. And you'll see that. You saw that already in John 1. But this is actually the same concept that you uh, learn about in some Chinese, ancient Chinese traditions. The Tao is the same idea. I don't know if anybody comes from a Chinese tradition and you have that around your home. But the idea with the Tao is this guiding principle, this universal truth, this universal reality that dictates things. And, and in other Eastern traditions, it's the Dharma. If you've heard of the Dharma, it's the same idea they're trying to get at is, is this idea of this guiding principle, this overarching reasonableness to all things. And so when you think about the Logos, or you think about the Tao, or you think about the Dharma, what you're, what, you're, what, what, what you're trying to get at, and the reason is that language can't perfectly get us there, but you're getting at this guiding principle or uh, wisdom as like a transcendent reality, not just like specific to you and your circumstance, but it's a, it's a thing that exists that you can grab a hold of and bring down it's something that exists outside of you that we have access to, and the means to accessing it is the Tao, or is the Dharma, or is the Logos. It's, it's the, um, the idea is that, that order and all order that exists, it, um, it exists somewhere outside of you, and it's something to be grabbed a hold of, that we can access a transcendent moral good. That's where we get kind of objective morality from that that what is right, what is good, what is true doesn't live only with you. It's actually outside of you, and, and, and it exists for everyone. It's universal, and, and, and we, have to, we have to look for it and, and, point to, and, and aim towards it and try to find it in order to apply it because it's, because it's not up to you to determine what's good. It already exists. And the idea with the Logos is kind of the bridge between its objective reality and our human experience. That's the idea with the Logos at least. I want to unpack this a little bit more so you see and understand what their vision for the Logos is because we don't use this language at all. And we don't even, in the postmodern society, we don't even believe this. We don't even talk like this, like there's some sort of universal wisdom, universal good, universal truth, right? But this is what all humans have believed forever. And this is what every religious tradition is built upon is an assumption or a belief that that does exist, and that the human endeavor is to find that, is to pursue that, is to engage with that for the sake of your own personal and communal thriving. So you can think of the Logos as like the, the imminent dictator of order and goodness in the world. Or then if you get to personal level, it's, um, it's within you. It's the ideal that you're constantly striving towards. That's the idea with the Logos. It's something that you, within you, you constantly have this vision for what's good, this vision for what's best, and you're striving towards it or you're aiming at it. It's, it's the thing that gives you meaning to your circumstances. Some people use the language of the Logos as the, um, the thing that, that brings meaning to your pain and suffering, Right? I mean, you've ever experienced pain and suffering and you can't help yourself but look for meaning in it. 
And you, and you might say these things that you're not even sure if they're true, but they're meaningful and they help. And so the idea there is that within you, your aim at what is meaningful and purposeful and bringing meaning and purpose to the world around you, regardless of your circumstances, that's, that's again baked into this idea of the, the logos. And again, that it's a universal thing. It's a universal experience. Nobody escapes it. It's the gentle voice that guides, that nudges, that prompts. That's the logos. It's the pattern-making force or the principle that produces order. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, I want you to read this. This is, this is from like just after Jesus' time. This is a Greek philosopher who would have been aware of Christian teachings just after the times of Jesus and the disciples. He goes, the logos of the living God is the bond of everything. It prevents all things from being dissolved and separated. And so in their framework, Unity was an ultimate good, and disunity was an ultimate bad. Order was the ultimate good, and chaos is the ultimate bad. And that's both personally and internally, as well as collectively and communally. So he's using the language of the Logos as the living God that is the bond of everything. Not just the transcendent God, but the God that bonds everything and keeps everything orderly and unified and connected. It's in this context that we're going to read John chapter 1 again. But I think it's important for us to see very clearly what their understanding of the Logos was and what John's would have been to his audience. I just want to add this thought here this morning. A relationship or a pursuit of the Logos or the Tao or the Dharma, this is a universal human experience. This is something that all humans forever have aimed at and pursued and tried to uh, create words or find words to describe. This is not unique to the Christian tradition. We're going to get to what's unique to the Christian tradition. But this is a universal human experience, and it's important that we know that and understand that. It's less the result of a secret supernatural knowledge and it is more a common, frequent human experience. And this takes us to John 1. This takes us to reading John, the Apostle John, writing about Jesus in this context with this framework. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word there, that Word is Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos, that framework we're talking about, was with God. And that Logos was fully God, and that Logos was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. We looked at the video and we saw that. In him was life, and the light, or in life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines on the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. That's another idea with the Logos, that it's a, that it's a light that shines the way forward, the better way forward. And again, people from all different cultural backgrounds have believed in the reality of this very thing and have been looking for answers to what that is. And what the Christian tradition says, those who follow Jesus say, and I believe this is true, not just for the person who proclaims it, I believe this is actually a universal truth of the reality of the world that we live in, whether you think it or not. That's my conviction that that Logos is the person of Jesus. When you read the New Testament, that's what the whole New Testament is trying to tell you. 
It's trying to tell you that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish expectation. It's trying to tell you that Jesus is the Christ, the expected figure that would represent the Logos. It's trying to tell you that Jesus is the guiding principle. It's trying to tell you that Jesus is the divine wisdom that we're all trying to aim at and find and experience and possess and grab a hold of. It's trying to tell us that Jesus is that which order flows from. It's trying to tell us here, John's trying to tell us that Jesus is the light that contrasts the dark. If you read your New Testament, it's like full of that kind of language. They're trying to tell us that Jesus is the ideal that we strive towards, that Jesus is the voice that nudges us in the direction of goodness, that Jesus is the voice that guides us, and Jesus is the bond of everything. We read that in Philo, he who prevents all things from being dissolved and separated. You'll be hearing another verse if you're familiar with your New Testament, Colossians 1.17, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what he's talking about. That is, a, that is what the first century church understood Jesus to be. And they believed this to be a universal reality, not just a specific religious conviction of one sect. That the reality that all of human history has been looking for and pursuing this logos, this Tao, this Dharma, this universal guiding principle, that that's actually found in Jesus the person, not as a principle. The Greeks, they would have believed in the Logos and the Chinese in the Tao and, and other Eastern cultures in the Dharma, and they would have um, believed it to be some sort of kind of abstract principle. And what the Christian tradition does and did and will forever do is actually say, no, 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 that's actually not just this abstract principle of reality. That's a person. And that's the marker. That's the shift. That is the change in history. That is the change in the way we understand the Logos. That is why the Christian tradition is to worship Jesus, to sing about Jesus, to pursue Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to ask Jesus, to go to Jesus, to seek wisdom in Jesus. It's not just an abstract principle. It's a person, a, really, a very real person who lived 2,000 years ago. For the follower of Jesus, the Logos, the Tao, the Dharma is a person, and that's what the incarnation actually means. The incarnation is the reality of God. That we read about in the Old Testament, the Father, and we believe the Son and the Spirit are there, but that reality incarnating, becoming flesh, becoming human. So what does this have to do with the language of spending time in the presence of God? We're being with Jesus. Here's one way to think about it. And I'm hoping over the next few weeks and maybe in the next few months, we have more ways to think about it. You can think about it this way. To be with Jesus is to turn your focus towards the voice of reason and wisdom within. To be with Jesus is turn your focus and your attention towards a voice of reason and wisdom that you experience. Because everyone experiences that. To be with Jesus is to courageously face your sense of moral conviction. We taught the students this a few weeks ago in worship. We're asking, what does it mean to be in the presence of God? And oftentimes it means turning into what you feel convicted about, not turning away from it. But it's a good thing because when you turn to conviction, it also leads you to turn to mercy and grace and forgiveness, which leads to gratitude and worship and love. We turn into conviction. So to be in the presence of God is to actually sense and feel and think Maybe I'm convicted about this and turn into it. It's not to turn away from it. That's what it means to spend time with Jesus. To spend time with Jesus is to turn our attention 
towards that which we fear, not away from it. To know you have fears, you have anxieties, you have shames, you have uncertainty, and to turn towards it and to name it and to see it for what it is. And then to at the same time receive the gentle voice that tells you it's okay, that I'll take care of you. Jesus is the voice that guides us through pain and suffering towards meaning and hope. That's, that's who Jesus is. And if you've experienced that, I want to tell you that that is not just your internal conscience. The Christian tradition teaches, and I think history backs it up, that that is the actually very voice of God in your life. It's the presence of God in your life. To be with Jesus is to obey that voice that is telling you to do what is good and what is right. To be with Jesus is to set our mind and attention on the ideal. That's what the Logos was. It was the ideal that we strive towards. And what I'm telling you this morning is to be with Jesus and to spend time in the presence of God, according to the New Testament, is to turn into that and look towards that ideal, what that is, and actually aim at that ideal and walk in the direction of that. Ideal. I'm using language that is familiar to the, the concept of the Logos because the Bible teaches us and the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is that. And we have to understand what that actually meant in order to actually understand what the New Testament teaches us Jesus is and who he teaches us, what, uh, who the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is. The reason I want to start with this today is because my hope is that in the next little while, the presence of God becomes more familiar to you. I think we need to demystify the presence of God. Not that it's not a mystery. I just think that a lot of us avoid it or are insecure about it or uncertain about it because we assume that it takes a special knowledge of some sort that you and I don't possess. You feel uncertain and insecure because you think maybe some people get it and maybe the people who talk about it professionally get it and maybe Santi gets it, but he might have a piece of knowledge that I don't have. And what I want to offer to you as the church is that you actually have everything you need to experience the presence of God. And I think you're experiencing it all the time. You just may not know that that's what it is. You're experiencing conviction. You're experiencing challenges. You're experiencing wisdom that just kind of gets dropped. You're experiencing a sense of moral good and rightness. And you're trying to live into that. That is the Logos. And you may ask yourself, well, maybe it isn't at times. And we'll get there. And we'll talk more about it. But what I wanted to do today was to open up the conversation about the presence of God as something that you can and do experience. It doesn't require a secret spiritual knowledge. It is something that's familiar to you. Now, as we close things out this morning, and my hope is over this conversation over the next several weeks, that we get to unpack this a little bit further and you get to see new angles of it. But I do want to say that the secret spiritual knowledge, in Christian theological terms, we use the language of special revelation. The special revelation is that Jesus is the Logos. That's what the secret knowledge is. The special revelation that we have in Scripture that the rest of the world who's pursuing the Logos and the Tao and the Dharma that they don't have the special knowledge, the special revelation that we have that is taught to us in Scripture, but more than that, taught to us through the tradition of Jesus and the work that was done on the cross is that Jesus is that Logos. And in order to better understand and to know 
what the Logos is, in order to better understand and be able to differentiate and discern, is this God or is this not? Is this the presence of God or is this a demon? Is this good or is this bad? Is this wise or is this foolish? The way to discern that, the way to differentiate, because that should be your next question. I have all sorts of ideas that pop in my head. <clears throat> They're not all good. The way to differentiate that is to look to Jesus is to turn our attention to the person of Jesus. If Jesus is the Logos, then we need to get familiar with the person of Jesus. We need to orient ourselves in the direction of Jesus. And when we do that, we will be formed into Christ-likeness, and we will live the way that he would live here in Milton. And so in future weeks, I hope we unpack this a little bit further, and we're going to invite some other voices into that conversation. But the question we often, we have to leave with this morning is, Lord, if you, I just want to pray, Lord, if, um, <clears throat> if it is true <clears throat> that the sense that we all have, the experience that we all have of looking for what's good and what's right and what's wise and what's noble and what's true, if that general like principle and those values that we're trying to follow and aim at is actually you, it's not just an abstract principle or ethic derived from within or ourself, but it's actually universal reality. And that, that your scripture says that that is you actually in us and through us. Lord, then we, um, we as a body, we look to you. And we worship by turning our attention in your direction. We do that through prayer together, Lord. We're doing that through singing together. We're doing that through listening to your teaching and serving one another in love and caring for one another and giving generously, those are all the things that we do to turn our attention back to you, Lord. And I'm asking you, King Jesus, to continue to lead us in the direction of knowing and experiencing and feeling your presence in our everyday universal experience of feeling conviction and love, forgiveness and goodness, and guidance and wisdom. So be with us, King Jesus. We worship you. We live as though you are the Logos. Your scriptures testify to that and teaches that and we believe that. And we ask that in special ways that your spirit shows up and prompts us and guides us and nudges us and makes us feel the love that you say you have to offer. We ask that your spirit leads us, confirms things, solidifies things, grows us. We're asking that your spirit actually forms us into your likeness and permeates us with your love. And that we experience that together from one another as we pursue and turn our attention towards you, the divine Logos, the ultimate good. That which mediates between the heavenly Father that is all goodness, perfection, morality, truth in the world that we live in. Thank you, Jesus, for this time together that we can do that in a small way this morning. Go with us from here. Give us peace and love. In the name of Jesus, amen.